This is Communicating Effectively, a podcast designed to complement the CST 110 Communicating Effectively course at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. We are your hosts, Ashley Hannah Edwards and Jess Peterson. You can call us Dr. Edwards and Professor Peterson. Our goal is to introduce you to communication studies and to help you to become a more effective communicator. Over the course of the semester, we'll be talking about dialogue, civic engagement, interpersonal communication, and public speaking. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about dialogic communication. And if you haven't heard that expression before, but you've heard the expression dialogue, conversation, um, those are synonymous, right? And so when we're talking about dialogue or dialogic communication, we're really referring to a specific style of communicating with one or many others. And that style has a lot to do with the goals that you might hold for a conversation. So we are by no means arguing that dialogic communication is the correct way of communicating, like universally correct or morally superior. What we're going to be talking about this semester are the ways that dialogic communication can really help us to meet a specific set of goals, goals that we might be concerned with in this particular class of communicating effectively by connecting with other people, by informing people about topics that we feel passionate or connected to, and by persuading people to engage in, you know, pro-civic behaviors that we think would help our community and the communities of others. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking today about some specific characteristics that set dialogic communication as a style of communication apart from other more general forms of communication. So we're going to talk about the principles of civility, of politeness, of presentness, unconditional positive regard, mutual equality. So Professor Peterson, do you want to talk a little bit about civility and what that looks like in dialogue? Yeah, and I think before we really jump into that, I kind of just want to touch on the definition of dialogue that your book highlights, and that's that it requires an openness to change and appreciation for the other person's perspective. So when we're talking about like dialogue and using that as a form of communication, not only is your speech, your words, does that matter? It just also matters how much you listen to the other person and how you interpret um, their message to you too, because that is going to really be a factor on if that person wants to keep engaging with you even in the future. So when we get into persuasive speeches, you'll see that you have to talk to some people and have conversations that might be uncomfortable or might challenge your views and everything you know. And that's okay. That's those are conversations we need to start having and continuing to have even outside of the classroom. And so sometimes our dialogue can be muddied when we engage with others who don't necessarily have the same goals that we do. And so keeping perspective is vital when you are engaging in dialogic communication. So yeah, the first component of dialogic communication is civility. And when you hear the term civility, Dr. Edwards, what do you think of? So I have to be honest, the first thing I think of is tone policing or like telling people that there's one right way to say something Um, that's something we hear a lot right now or political correctness so for me my first instinct when I hear civility 
is that it's a problematic thing, right? That we're telling people what they should or should not say. But I know that that's not a really holistic understanding. So tell me more about civility. So when I think of civility as somebody who has like a background in politics, right, my mind goes to terms like civilization and civics and civic engagement. Um, And so those that when I think of civility, that's where my mind goes, which is completely the opposite direction. And I think it depends on your background with the term, right, that denotative versus connotative kind of definition. And the denotative definition that the book gives is the ability to treat others with respect so we can have a lasting, peaceful and positive interaction. I agree with the first part, the treating others with respect. Um, and having a peaceful interaction and even building your network. So that's a lasting interaction. So when I think about that, I think about when I was a lobbyist and getting a lot of pushback for bills that I was lobbying on for education in South Dakota, which is not a huge education state, everyone, if you weren't aware, but you can still have lasting, meaningful relationships with people if you give them you show them the respect that you would also like in return mm-hmm. and you just say, I'm here to listen to you. Right. I will, I'm going to tell you my thoughts on this and I will listen to you. And I think there's a point where if they start degrading me or they start saying things, that's when I can turn on my assertive tone and move into that assertive side of me. But until they do something, I'm going to show them that respect. And so I agree with you. I think there is tone policing. There's a lot of the politeness, I'm doing air quotes, everyone, that gets yeah. thrown around, right? Because you you have to be so polite. You can't say things in the wrong way, especially in the Midwest where we live, right? Like, right. you're being Um, You need to have good manners. It's like, no, I can, it, based on your identity a lot of times too, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can get pushback for being assertive. And so I think civility, I think it's important to treat one another with a mutual respect, and trying to understand one another and trying to gain understanding of that person's perspective. Because when you're engaging with somebody in a community, you're going to have to keep engaging with that person. That person's not leaving that community, we hope, right? Right. You need to have those hard conversations. And so for me, that's where the civility plays into that respect for yourself, knowing when to walk away sometimes Mm -hmm. is that respect for yourself knowing when to engage, when to push, respect for others on when you can push them, or maybe that person's just not going to change. And you have to be willing to say, well, that's their views. We're different, but they're still human beings. So I'm just going to walk away and choose not to engage with that person. And being polite, you know, saying please and thank you, especially when you're interacting with community, that's huge because that is people's time that you're taking when we get down to that road of interviewing. And so just saying, please, and thank you, I think, is almost a universal, like you right. want to show gratitude for somebody who's giving you the time for being willing to openly engage with you. It's sometimes that's what I tell our nephew, I sit down with him, and he'll tell me he's mad. And I'm like, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that you disagree. And that you're upset about the situation. I still don't think you should do it. But I like thank you for being open and willing to do that and saying please when you want something because just being gracious to another person. Yeah. Well, and I think 
the um, Brown and Levinson's politeness theory, which like mm-hmm. I'm going to nerd out for a minute because my dissertation was on Ooh. a theory of polite support seeking, um, which is easily abbreviated to TOPS. But so um, politeness, according to Brown and Levinson, is a really complicated communication characteristic. And so it's not even as straightforward as a lot of times our Midwestern politeness makes it out to be because it really has elements of respect for self and respect for others. And so they talk about how politeness is both positive and negative. And so positive politeness is about making sure that the people you're communicating with, yourself included, look good, right? Like that there's positive regard. Like I don't look bad. You don't look bad. That makes both of us more comfortable. But also there's this element that they refer to as negative politeness. And negative politeness isn't that you don't want to look bad. It's that you don't want to have your freedoms infringed upon. And so I think from that framework, it's really helpful for me to understand civility because being civil then, if politeness is a part of that definition, means that I, yes, I need to be considerate of the other person and how they look. And um, on the other hand, I need to... Uh, double check. I'm just, oh, you can come in. I'm just laughing. You all can't see this, (laughs) but my partner just came in to get a refill on his coffee and I was trying to shoo him away. I don't know if that's very civil or polite. I know it's not very (laughs) polite because I was doing a negative politeness threat. We call this a, a face threatening act by telling him not to come in and pour his coffee. I was restricting on his ability to do the thing that he wanted to do. My favorite example though, of negative face threats are like when people ask you to do something on Facebook and like you have to publicly commit to it. And that's like really threatening, right? Cause it puts you in the position of like, oh, now I have to do this thing or everyone else will know. And so it infringes on my freedom and it makes me feel afraid that I might look bad. That's that positive politeness. And so that is something that we wouldn't in a Midwestern sense think of as impolite, but based on this communication theory of politeness would be impolite. Dr. Edwards, that just really resonated with me with the situation I currently find myself in. Um, with my neighbors bringing a box yes. of food over and I, I we have a dog that gets kind of protective when I'm at the door and so I had to walk outside and literally was thrust upon this box of food and I was like okay I have this box of food but then that just reminded me our neighbor just invited us on Facebook to their son's third birthday and I'm like oh so n- do I have to go and buy your children gifts now? Because you just bought me a box of food. Right? Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So civility is such a complicated concept because it has like this, you know, connotative meaning that a lot of us hold today of like tone policing and, um, you know, just like aspects of freedom of speech. But at the same time, there are all these like invisible personal dynamics And I think that connects really well to another part of dialogic communication or this aspect of presentness. Um, So presentness is this idea that when you're engaged in dialogue, you should be in that dialogue, right? That you should be focused on it. You should be giving it your attention. And that in and of itself can be an impolite expectation because it's taking for granted that you're engaging in dialogue, let's say in your class, 
Um, and, you know, recognizing that you might have to make choices in order to be present that aren't being acknowledged, like that you might be making sacrifices, say, to your sleep schedule or your ability to get work done. But I think presentness also becomes really important when we're talking about a semester like this one, where you're engaged in class in a variety of formats, some of them face to face, some of them virtual, and there's all this like extraneous noise of masks and social distancing and uh, uh, an election and a pandemic and those things in combination can make it really threatening to be present because we have so many other things that we might be dealing with as noise. And so presentness is asking a lot of us, which is a negative face threat. And so to me, presentness means showing up like in, in class with me, like I hope you show up to class and you're present to the degree that you're able to be present. But I also think then going back to that politeness aspect, you know, as a professor, it's on me not to expect something unreasonable. Like, I'm not expecting you to show up, you know, like with this like perfectly curated, you know, video conferencing space where you have, you know, just the perfect background and you're wearing your three piece suit and you made sure to turn on your ring light that day. Like, I'm just hoping you show up for the conversation, video on, video off, hair in a messy bun sweatshirt, laying on your bed. I prefer you to be fully clothed. And that is going to be, you know, in our course agreement. But, you know, for the most part, just show up and that can be presence. Yeah. And I think that goes really well into like that uh, unconditional positive regard, right? Like that you would give students on camera, but it goes even further than that. When you're not present in a space, I, I'm sure everybody can attest to this. You're somewhere and somebody's on their phone. And I think even right now with the times that we find ourselves in, there's so much misinformation and so many different kinds of perspectives out there that when you're not present, like in that dialogue that you find yourself in and you're staring at your phone or you're scrolling through whatever kind of social media you're using, you're getting inundated with information that might not give you unconditional positive regard for somebody that you see later on. Right. Right. Like you're going to think things about that person that you might interact with at a different time because of something that they posted online or something that they said 20 years ago or right. Like all of that comes up. And so we see this all the time that we are not able to give unconditional positive regard to people that are constantly on our social media feed because our bias, whether they confirm us or they go against us, right? We're going to feed into either side and we're going to pick what side that person's on without really giving them the time to explain why they might have that view or what their thoughts are. And so I think giving, keeping an open mind and right. giving people that positive attitude in an online context can be very challenging, right? Because we lose yeah. a lot of those nonverbal cues. And so it's just their words. And when you read their words with a tone or they put, um, if you're a Facebook user, instead of liking it, they do like the ha-ha thing. You're like, oh, you're coming at me, right? Um, which don't engage in Facebook debates. <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> not to do. But they're not, they're not meant to be competitive, right? But as soon as we put them in that space, we take away that other person's tone. We don't know what their tone might be. Or they ask it in a way that we interpret as malicious, it then becomes competitive and we have to fight to win. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Yeah, I totally think um, this really, to me, is one of the things that I hear people talking about all the time with social media in particular, is like, social media is not a place for dialogue, it's a place for debate. And like, debate is certainly not dialogic. And I think what's really important for us to recognize as we study communication is that it's not that the platform itself prohibits dialogue. You can absolutely have dialogue somewhere like Facebook or TikTok even, but it requires us to think about different features. So like you brought up Professor Peterson, you know, like having limited access to certain nonverbal behaviors might allow the noise of like the context of our relationship or what we know about each other's political views, it mm-hmm. might allow those things to kind of supersede some of what we know we should be doing in order to be dialogic. And so I think that um, kind of the last characteristic of uh, dialogic communication that our book talks about is mutual equality. And I think that that's something that um, we really need to prioritize if we want to have dialogue in virtual spaces. And I would argue it's one of the things that we don't do very well virtually. Um, mutual equality is this idea that we look at the other person or the other people in the dialogue as bringing something valuable to the table that's equal to what we're bringing to the table. And so just to like continue using like political dialogue as an express, as an example, I think when you look at the conversations people are having about politics on Facebook, because I'm an elder millennial, as we've already established and like, that's my social network where I have the most connection. Mm -hmm. I think that what we see is that people aren't coming to those conversations with mutual equality, right? People are going either to engage in debate Mm -hmm. where it's that competitiveness or um, they're going to, I'm using air quotes, educate others, right? Like I have information. I am going to, you know, bestow that information on you. That's not dialogue. And so like, this is going to come up again when we talk about what you should be doing for your informative presentation, because dialogue is not a one directional, I have all the knowledge and things to bring to this conversation. And you will receive those things gratefully. It's also not what class should be. That's called a monologue. (laughs) Exactly. And monologues don't have the same communicative power that dialogues do. But in order to have that power be realized, you really have to come in saying, this is what I know. These are my lived experiences. I'm open to X extent to share those things. But I'm also recognizing and going into this conversation, truly believing that the other person has something to share with me and that what they have to share with me might be different. It might conflict with what I know, but it's equal in its value of like being heard or being recognized. For sure. And I think it's so important to have mutual respect and mutual equality for one another. I think that word mutual is super important. So um, it actually reminds me of a story that you talked when you were talking about like the debate versus dialogue. Um, in college, my best, one of my good friends and I were like running against each other for student body president of our university. And they did this televised debate and we went into it and we're like, what? okay, like we're going to have this debate. And they kept asking us questions and it was like, well, actually Tyler's making a good point. Could I just add to it and maybe tweet it? And he's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And people were like, 
why are you not running together if you're just going to have a dialogue instead of an actual debate? And somebody was like, well, they wanted two people to run so they could have the debate because they wanted that competition. And so a lot of times what we see, even in the classroom sometimes, we think that we're giving a monologue when we're giving a public address. We think that we're going to have a debate when there's more than one person speaking at a time. And that's Mm -hmm. not true, right? Because when you're able to have an open conversation, you have goals that are in common that you want to see. Great. Both of us wanted to see the university succeed with where we were going and the time that we were entering um, student government together. But we had to be willing to share those goals. And so when one of us Mm -hmm. started asking, answering the question, the other one was like, oh, that's a good idea. Also this. And right, we had different viewpoints, but we were able to have a civil discussion, even on points where we disagreed, because trust me, Tyler and I do not agree on everything anywhere. We are very different. And so the fact that we're able to find that common ground and come together to work through a solution, people left the debate and they go, what? what? It's literally just going to end up being a popularity contest (laughs) because we work so well together. And I think that that's something that, you know, so often we lose sight of is that there are times when what people can create collaboratively is more than just an addition of what those two individuals bring to the table separately, but is this like, you know, like multiplied output And I think, um, you know, just to kind of circle back, we're clearly recognizing that this form of communication is not going to work all the time. And so there may be political debates where you can't come together. Um, There might be times when you necessarily, from your position of experience, are sharing that lived experience with someone else. Mm -hmm. And no matter what they have to say in response, it's not going to touch what you know through that lived experience. And that's okay. We're not saying that those aren't valid forms of communication. But what we are saying is that in this class, in CST 110, Communicating Effectively, what we're hoping to do What we're hoping to practice over the course of the semester is a form of communication that follows these kind of specific principles that has civility in that it conveys respect for yourself and for others. And it does that through politeness by, you know, acknowledging somebody else's value and working not to make the other person look bad, but also allowing that person freedom. It involves presentness, which means showing up for the conversation and being willing to participate and be engaged, whether you're the person giving the presentation or the audience member who's giving them feedback. It means unconditional positive regard, which is that in this classroom, we're going to trust that people are, you know, acting with good intention, and we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, especially during a pandemic. It also means mutual equality. And I think, um, you know, if I can speak for you, Professor Peterson, you can chime in here. I think that's one of the things that is so true of CST 110, and in particular our sections, which is that we really genuinely believe that our conversations over the course of the semester, that you're going to benefit from our experience and expertise, but also that we're going to benefit from your experience and expertise, that everyone in this conversation is bringing value to the conversation. 
And so as we continue throughout the semester, you're going to see us talking again about the differences between the dialogue that we're working to cultivate and other forms of communication like monologue and debate that might be valuable, you know, kind of just depending on what your goals are. So that's where we're hoping to take this. And thank you for joining us.